0: Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare.
1: Hi Medicus podcast listeners, I'm Sarah, an M1 here at Stritch, and I'll be your host today as we talk to Dr. Michael Barrett. He is a physician-astronaut double-boarded in internal medicine and aerospace medicine and also a NASA flight surgeon. So with that... Hi, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great, Sarah, great to talk to you.
1: Great, thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, I was wondering if you could just start us off with a brief intro, I know we kind of introduced you, but maybe if you could speak more on your journey to getting into all these roles and how you knew you wanted to go down this path.
2: Well, uh, a great question because uh, at the front end I didn't know that I wanted to go down this path. In fact, I think I can safely say I didn't know this path even existed. Uh, so in a way, it, it gives me a little bit of pride to be able to talk to medical students now to let them know stuff that I couldn't even envision back at the time. So, um, you know, I think like a lot of people that work at NASA, I have a lot of broad interests. And I think uh, you could characterize all of our lives by, you know, two words, career anxiety, because we all were looking for a place to put all these things together that we love And I'll just tell you that the space program does that. So backing up a little bit, uh, my undergrad degree was in marine zoology of all things. And then I I went to medical school as it turned out, um, a little twist and turn, really fell in love with human physiology and and medicine. And probably during my senior year realized that there even was this entity called aerospace medicine. And that was while I was studying for the MCATs uh, in in a library. And yeah, we had the MCATs back in ancient times as well. And I saw this journal that was uh, Aviation, Space, and Environmental Medicine. I had no idea there was anything like that. And that one afternoon, I I stopped studying, and I read every issue that they had, every hard copy. Um, And I started talking to people about it, and it just really got me excited that uh, there was something that combined a lot of things that I really liked, outdoors, flying, photography, and, and medicine. And I looked at literature at the time and realized there was a bit of a divide between you know, what we would call the operations world, the the medical folks that support space flight, flight surgeons, and the research world, you found those going in two very different directions, published in sometimes different journals. And I really wanted to learn pathophysiology well and made that deliberate choice to go into internal medicine because of that. And so, um, spent four years at Northwestern University and Chicago Medical School, and then another four years there as a uh, resident internal medicine. And then the next, that extra year was a chief resident year, which was a great year, by the way. Um, gave me a chance to really learn some servant leadership skills, and. Uh, learn how to manage people and take care of patients at the same time. And that was probably one of the biggest growth years I've ever had. And I was lucky enough to go into an aerospace medicine residency right after that. So two back-to-back residencies. And that was in uh, Dayton, Ohio, which was run jointly by Wright State University, Wright Patterson Air Force Base and NASA. And then I was lucky enough to secure a job down at uh, Johnson Space Center in NASA in 1991. So the, the short story then is I, I spent nine years as an operational flight surgeon. And in the year 2000, I was even luckier enough to transition to the astronaut office and uh, became a member of the, the Flying Cadre. So fast forward, I'm looking back at a bit of history here. I've been lucky enough to fly twice in space. I flew a 199 day mission in 2009 and a 13 day mission in 2011. And um, I'm in training right now, hoping to go back to the International Space Station sometime soon. But I will also note, uh, and then I'll I'll ask you uh, where you want me to go, but uh, I will also note that during that time, I've been able to really keep pursuing this passion in space medicine. And I'm sure we'll get into why here as we go. Um, But um, partly uh, to keep up academically, because space medicine is such a new thing, and we're always making new observations. And the more prepared you are, the more familiar with what we know, the better equipped you are, positioned you are to understand what you see or to try to investigate what you see, because you may not understand it. And I've served in the role of uh, lead medical representative for the astronaut office for many years during that time. And also following that academic line, I have been senior editor of one of our textbooks, which I'm actually in the process of editing the third edition right now. Um, so, uh, you know, I want people to know that space medicine really is a it's a niche specialty, but it's it's a well-founded specialty uh, aerospace medicine is boarded and there is an organized knowledge base that people can pursue.
1: That's so cool. It's, it's hard to decide what you want to do. And I think, you know, that's something a lot of my classmates are you know considering now and moving into second and third year. It's a really big decision because you really have to look at kind of what the rest of your life is going to look like. Did you decide right at the beginning of medical school you wanted to do aerospace medicine residency? And I guess if that's the case for people going into that, do they typically do an internal medicine aerospace uh, dual board or do some people just go straight into aerospace?
2: Well, things have changed a lot. Um, When I was in your position now, that path was very unclear. I will have to note that there was no internet either. (laughs) And so the ability to really search on a topic to understand things was, was a lot more limited and a lot more dependent on your own initiative. I mean, we had these things called phone books, right? So when I was reading that journal of, of aerospace medicine, it was actually not addressed to the library, but a flight surgeon, a former air force flight surgeon who was still getting the subscription and donating them to the library. He had a very generic name and I called like five, Uh, people with his name before I got the right guy. And then he talked to me for two hours. Um, And then he told me about other people that I could actually write physical letters to and, and call. And so it was a slowly built interest over time. And most of that time, I didn't really see it as a viable option. Whereas now you can find a lot about aerospace medicine. Now, that doesn't mean that your classmates have that at the top of their choice list. It's still a very unknown specialty to many people, which again, uh, I'm really anxious to share about a little bit, but the ways to learn about it are, are much more numerous now. And the path for a career is much more clear now. And I would say the opportunities are, are much greater now, which I think is very, very exciting. So um, I think that if people are, uh, you know, my, my hope today is just to alert Everybody, that there is this entity called aerospace medicine, a subset of which is space medicine, which is one of the coolest things ever. And a tiny fraction of your classmates might get interested in that. And hopefully, this will pay us forward as we go. Now, you'd asked about specialties. Um, the typical space medicine practitioner is not an astronaut. I'll say that right up front. I'm one of a few. There are a handful of us, but mostly they become members of the flight surgeon cadre. And uh, most of them are double-boarded in some basic clinical specialty and aerospace medicine. And that is something that we we covet quite a lot, actually. We need people who can really take care of the patient uh, and really understand long-term care, but also understand the acute peculiarities of the environment that we're going to throw them into. And so we have, I think, the dominant specialties are internal medicine, aerospace, and emergency medicine aerospace, but we've got others. We've got, uh, there are ENT aerospace folks out there. A lot of us were mentored by the one and only Richard T. Jennings, who uh, was my boss at one time, uh, who in his, I believe mid seventies now is still incredibly active in space medicine. He's OBGYN aerospace medicine um, and extremely well-known and extremely respected. And so I think it's important to point out that spaceflight needs a lot of different specialties. Diversity of thought is one of our strongest points, but that has to be augmented with formal training in aerospace medicine. So you really understand the environment and what we know of the human's response to that environment.
1: And aerospace medicine, you said, isn't just about space, right? It's about any kind of extreme environment?
2: well it's it's more about aviation and space and so but but it's a really good point so when we think about aerospace medicine the the three probably big branches are civil aviation and high performance aviation think about fighter jets that the military would fly and then space and as you might guess there's a lot of intersections between them so we're talking about cabin pressures and g loads and long periods of senescence and um, worries about launch and landing and spreading infections and all that kind of stuff. Uh, But there are also intersections with other extreme medicine environments, which is part of what I love about space medicine. So we work with people who uh, operate in polar environments, undersea environments, desert environments, places where you're putting the human deliberately into a, a physiologically stressful place And because of those commonalities, we're able to share findings and share knowledge. And so I work also in this extreme medicine community, um, which has really helped me. And hopefully we've been able to transfer some of our observations and practices uh, out to that world as well. So um, the world is a lot bigger even than aerospace medicine, but aerospace is the core of what we do.
1: All right. No, that's actually a really good clarification. Um, Most, I would say, I didn't really know about this until probably six months ago when I started finding research and digging more into that and saying, huh, that's interesting, Um, but it's really neat. Do you know of any opportunities that medical students might be able to get more involved in to further explore the specialty?
2: Sure, and so one thing I, I will tell people up front after years and years of observation and teaching and writing is that space medicine is not something you can just dabble in From the career standpoint and and I see a lot of people who just want to do that who want to be involved but uh, I think the main thing for these opportunities is to get initial exposure to help help you make a decision as to whether you want to commit or not at some point you have to commit whether it's surgery or internal medicine or family medicine at some point you do have to commit but hopefully you will have had some experiences and some exposures before that so let's talk about those exposures Um, there's a lot on the internet. There's a lot to read there. In fact, there's enough literature to totally get lost in and totally get befuddled by. And we've been at this long enough that there's even some bad literature and some misinformation out there. So I almost take that as a sign of growth in a kind of a twisted sort of way. Um, But, but start looking, start reading. I really recommend the uh, human research programs website. It's a NASA organization And if you go to the research roadmap there, it's easy to find online, you'll find the list of the main medical problems that we encounter in space. And there's referenced evidence books, there's research gaps, knowledge gaps and whatnot. I mean, it's a really good place to just start exploring. As far as physical experiences, well, we have uh, NASA centers that offer internships and uh, clerkships. So at the Johnson Space Center, we have a rotation every April and every October. Each one is a one month rotations for medical students and residents. We have um, the summer clerkships, the summer internships, or I'm sorry, as we call it, that are run by the life sciences department at Johnson Space Center, uh, which are really good. I think they teach a lot of the basics and give the uh, student a chance to do a research project if they want. And then uh, the UTMB, University of Texas Medical Branch, which works very closely with NASA, runs a summer course, which is, uh, I believe, five weeks now, the uh, Principles of Aerospace Medicine, the PASM course. And uh, it is really good. It's a little bit more of a deeper dive and, and more of an immersion. And so these take time. I mean, these are kind of brushes with space medicine that also take a little time and also are a little bit competitive nowadays, which I also take a little pleasure in. Um, and there's similar rotations at Kennedy Space Center in Florida, and I believe Ames Research Center in California still does something as well, a little bit more in the basic life sciences. But it's when you get to do these that you get a close enough look, and then you decide, okay, do I really want to go down this road and say, do a formal aerospace medicine residency, hopefully coupled with a, a clinical specialty. And um Fortunately, a lot of people who do that, you know, most of our flight surgeons and folks who actually work medically at NASA kind of come through those pathways. Um, Another very interesting thing, though, now is that NASA is not the only game in town. And that's a very exciting thing for us. The commercial world is expanding and there are other entities out there flying human spaceships, uh, which is really cool. SpaceX in particular. And they will hopefully and probably be joined by others throwing people to low Earth orbit. And then you've got uh, Blue Origin and um, Virgin Galactic that are flying people to basically, well, we, we would say suborbital, these really kind of a short trips, but there's a lot of space medicine that goes into that as well. So the career opportunities are much broader than they used to be. And the, re- the need for um, space medicine practitioners is is greater than it ever has been. And there's a growth curve there.
1: That's a great segue into basically what I was gonna to talk to you next. So I know you mentioned um, different physiological changes that astronauts go through or anyone really in orbit would experience. So as spaceflight expands more into this commercial sector, I have a few questions on that. One, how long would it take for, like physiologically for a person in either a suborbital zone or an orbit to experience those physiological effects?
2: It's, it's, a, it's an insightful way to ask that question. Uh, mostly people just ask, what changes? What are the effects? But there is a definite time element to these. And when the body changes, it changes along an ordered sequence of events that I find it very important to explain around. So when you're doing a suborbital flight, you're in zero gravity for about four minutes. Uh, it's very exciting. It's a very exciting ascent. And then four minutes is very exciting. And then you get a very exciting entry. Um, but you're, you're not in weightlessness long enough for those kind of a long-term effects to happen. You will be uh, all of a sudden you'll, inter- you'll uh, assume the zero G posture, your stomach is going to come up to your, your neck and you're going to realize that this is like the ultimate elevator ride. And some folks will get some space motion sickness even in that short time. Uh, there's a lot that goes on. But uh, I'm going to kind of center things on, say, going into low Earth orbit because then you can see that, that ordered sequence of, of elements that happen. And, and by the way, when I teach, and, and I do teach in several venues, I always teach along a time sequence. So bravo for adding that element. When you first get into zero gravity, uh, the engines stop after maybe an eight to 10 minute rocket ride. So you're at Hyper-G accelerating with the acceleration vector going through your chest. And at certain times of that ascent profile, you'll weigh three to four and a half times your normal body weight. That's it's kind of exciting. But as soon as the engine's cut off and it's really abrupt, you are weightless. There is nothing gradual about that transition from hyper-G to zero-G. And the things that happen immediately, within seconds, you are weightless. Your tissues are totally unloaded. There's no more weight on your tissues. So there's no more compression on your vascular system or your interstitial space. So that's one big thing. The other big thing is that whatever hydrostatic gradient you have going in your vascular system is is vanished it's zeroed you will so if you're standing you know your hydrostatic pressure is much higher at your feet much lower at your head well it's all even now Uh, so immediately uh, if you take um right atrial pressure well that's venous pressure everywhere in your body because there's no more gradient Um, so that's kind of the proximate response the downstream response to that very quickly is you feel a fluid shift a rush of fluid to your head it almost feels like you're hanging upside down by the monkey bars uh, and for some that could be kind of uncomfortable uh, and immediately uh, you assume this neutral body posture which this is a podcast so i can't show you but imagine you went into a swimming pool and uh exhaled as much as you could so that you'd sink so you're totally immersed and relax as much as possible that's kind of the position you'll assume it's sort of a, the resultant tonic contraction we'll describe it that way of the big muscle groups and You'll be a little bit bent, almost in a fetal position at your hips and your knees, a little bit bent over. And that is your norm, That is your new norm. Uh, that will be your new norm for however long you're in space. That is set and done. And the other immediate thing that happens is a lot of your, what we call graviceptors, those receptors in your body that sense gravity, are totally unloaded. They're also zeroed out. So the big one, the big enchilada is the neurovestibular system. So all of a sudden, your, your balance is totally whack. Uh, it no longer coincides with your visual reference. That disconnect between what you think visually is up and down and what your neurovestibular, tells or, uh, neurovestibular system tells you is up and down, thats very provocative. Um, but those aren't the only graviceptors. You've got haptic sensors in your skin. You've got proprioceptors in your joints that also help tell you that this way is up, this way is down. Those are gone because those are all zeroed out. So immediately when those engines cut off, you're weightless, your hydrostatic gradient is gone, your fluid shifts and your sense of position is now in conflict with what your visual system is telling you. And so a lot of people get, well, we call it space motion sickness, but it's our version of seasickness. Um, and uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, we have maybe half the people who fly on the first time are gonna barf in space. <laughs> uh, and you have to be very careful in zero gravity uh, because you're all breathing the same air. You know? So those are the kind of things that happen. But um, I'll also make the point that, you know, every flight, a flight is not a physiologic experiment. It's an operational um, experience. And so all of that is happening while you are piloting a spaceship. And then when you get up there, you're trying to make sure your spaceship survived your rocket ride into orbit. And you're making sure that your, your buddies are okay. And you're making sure that your atmosphere is, is uh, intact. Oh, and by the way, if you're near a window, you're seeing the Earth from space for the first time, which is overwhelming. So all of this happens at once. It's just the most seminal moment of, of anyone's life when all that happens. And so all of that kind of sets the, the big sequence of events that happens. So over time, so this is minutes to hours. That's the first few minutes to hours. And, and you're busy during this time. So you might be throwing up and, and you might have a headache because all of a sudden you got fluid in your head, but you, know, you gotta press on. Um, over the next few days, you will lose about 12 to 15% of your circulating plasma volume. I will not go into why that happens, but it's pretty amazing. We had no idea that this mechanism existed until we saw it in space.
1: Is there a two two second explanation?
2: Well, sure. So um, well, (laughs) it's hard to do in two seconds, but but it's actually very exciting. So we'll take the time with it. we had always thought that you would lose volume the same way you do when you're on earth and you're in water immersion or head down tilt bed rest. We thought those were good analogs for space flight. You shift fluid to the central circulation and, you know, two main sources of capacitance vasculature in the venous system in the lower extremities and tissue interstitial fluids. All those are kind of compressed and they move to the chest. You to, to put it very simply, um, you will sense a volume overload. So you'll see heart chamber dilation, cardiac output increases a little bit, ANP uh, atrial natriuretic pep- uh, peptide increases and you'll diuresis basically. So you get a, what we used to call the Gower Henry effect, which uh, I, I doubt that any of you guys have heard of, because I think we just now call it the cardio renal effect, but, but you expect that when you put someone at head down tilt or in the water, um, they're going to pee because they've got this central fluid shift and they've, they sense a volume overload. So We uh, flew people, believe it or not, with central venous catheters in to kind of prove that point and quantify it. Well, lo and behold, central venous pressure did not go up, it went down. And lo and behold, we did not see a diuresis after people went into space. So that was a big disconnect between what we thought. Now, we knew even from the Apollo days and the Skylab days that for whatever reason we weren't seeing that diuresis. But it was only in the early shuttle program that we figured out how and why. You shift that fluid and you do see chamber dilation, um, but your total body water doesn't, doesn't really change. All that plasma volume extravasates from the vascular system into the interstitial system. Um, so again, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how simple to make this, but you, you, we see an increase in capillary permeability and oncotic proteins extravasate and albumin being the prominent one, the plasma by water goes out after the, uh, the proteins proteins are metabolized, and then we actually see an intracellular shift of that fluid. So when you think about it, this is like 12 to 15% of of your plasma volume goes a place we did not expect at all. So it implies a lot. Uh, It implies a total difference in how uh, cardiovascular dynamics are regulated. It implies a sodium pool that we didn't know existed because the water is basically following sodium into the intracellularly. Uh, and it implies a, an uncoupling of that cardio renal response we we didn't expect. So, you know, when when people say what do what do you learn in space? I mean, yeah, you know, if, if you're not curing cancer, a lot of people aren't impressed. To me, this is freaking amazing because it is physiologic performance, physiologic um, capabilities we didn't know the body had, and that's followed by something almost equally amazing, which is um, you extravasate that fluid and it leaves you in a state of mild hemoconcentration. And you apparently, our body does not like that. And so we will hemolyze down to a normal state of hemoconcentration. concentration. So we call this neocytolysis. You will selectively destroy your newly minted red cells, the, the nucleated red cells, until you get down to a normal state of, of hemo concentration. We didn't know that phenomenon existed until we, we saw it in space with chromium tagged red cell studies. So Um, Neocytolysis as we call it. Now we have since found it in other venues terrestrially, but only because we knew what to look for. So that's the other thing is you're gonna lose your plasma volume 12 to 50%. You're gonna lose a commensurate amount of red blood cells, which is amazing. And um, this makes you better for space flight. It sounds pathologic, but you feel better as this happens. Your your head relieves, you're a little bit more functional. Mm -hmm. And also during this time, your neurovestibular system starts to adapt and you start to map your, your visual surround with your newly integrated inputs from all these graviceptors again, neurovestibular, haptic, proprioceptive um, and you start to become a, a three dimensional creature, which is really pretty cool. So those things kind of get better once you're you're up there seven to ten days. Your plasma volume, or RBC mass is pretty well shifted. There's a lot about how the vascular system is regulated that that um, that I, I won't go into. But you know, I, the the readers can't see this, but I'm showing two fingers with about two and a half inches in between them. That's how thick our textbook is, uh, and that's how much it takes to to really explain all of that. Um, but uh, so that, that becomes static, and that's your new norm. Your, your new cardiovascular norm is that <clears throat> your um, heart kind of assumes a more spherical shape uh, with the diaphragm moving up a little bit, and that kind of maps to some of the central venous pressure changes that we see. And um, from that neurovestibular standpoint, you become a higher performer in zero G, and that continues to, to tune itself over a period of several weeks. And when you see somebody newly arrived and compare that to somebody who's been up there for several weeks, they're they're almost like totally different creatures. Um, And uh, there's a lot of other things that happen that are a little bit more subtle, but a little bit more sinister. And that is when you unload a system that is designed to work against gravity, musculoskeletal in particular, um, you totally unload that and it starts to decondition, to atrophy. So the minute those engines cut off, you do start to lose bone mass, you start to lose muscle mass, um, because you just don't have those load-bearing challenges unless you work hard to artificially put them back. Now, unlike neurovestibular inputs, you don't feel that unloading, but it does creep up with you over time. And so that forces us to put some of that loading back. And so we exercise two and a half hours a day to keep the bone and the muscle up. And those, those changes are most prominent in load-bearing joints and muscles. So lower extremities, when you're looking at bone loss, it's mostly pelvis, lumbar spine, hip, trochanter, um, calcaneus, and, of course, the muscle losses are in the hams, the quadriceps, the soleus, gastrox, and whatnot. So all of that happens. I, I should, should I pause a little bit because I'm, I'm rambling on like crazy? There's, there's other changes, changes in the endocrine system. There's changes in the immune system, changes in microflora, um, Pretty much every system in the body changes. Let's put it that and so at the end of the six weeks when you're deeply adapted and and you see this It's a beautiful thing to watch somebody come in to the space station brand new headache Sometimes throwing up running into things all the time Uh, And then they turn into this extraterrestrial creature after about six weeks where they're just they function perfectly they fly accurately uh, they can deliver loads that weigh a couple of hundred pounds on a dime. I mean, it's, it's just an amazing transition we make. So now, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll save it for later, but I'll just tell you that you pay for all that when you come home. So you've got to transition back to 1G when you come home. And that's also a time sequence.
1: Yeah, that's a lot of changes. I mean, I have so many questions <laughs> um, and it's so cool. But I guess we'll start with the one that's most at the front of my mind is You've been to space a few times now. Does it get easier?
2: So um, I I think I can say both cognitively and physiologically yes to both. Um, Because we know that people who are repeat flyers adapt quicker. And I saw that starkly demonstrated to me on my first flight. I was flying with uh, a Russian gentleman. We were on the Russian Soyuz, Gennady Padalka. He was on his third long duration flight. So he'd already spent a year in space. And I was that guy bumping around. I, I wasn't throwing up, thankfully, but, but I, was, I, had, I had head congestion and I found it difficult to fly accurately. I had a really big puffy head, puffy face and all that. And um, Gennady got up there and he just looked like he was at home. He immediately started flying accurately and was very graceful. And it was just amazing how fast he adapted to zero G. Um, and so it's, and I think that, um, you know, if you have motion sickness on one flight, it does make you a little bit more likely to have it on the other flight physiologically, but cognitively you learn how to avoid provocative motions. Uh, and so that's another thing you can see in people. So the repeat flyers definitely do better. And I have had the chance over, well, because I've flown for about 212 days total in space, I I've seen like 32 people in space besides myself of various degrees of experience. Um, And and that is a very strong phenomenon. Repeat flyers definitely do better.
1: That's so interesting. I guess the next thing I wanted to ask was kind of going back to more of the chronic conditions. Hmm. Is there one, based on your expertise, that stands out to you as most sinister or one that we should give the most attention to especially as we look forward to further commercialized travel and then also a really long duration mission to mars i don't know if there's one in particular that is you know kind of the holy grail of all that
2: yeah i will say there's two in particular so physiologic adaptation is is one really big thing uh and then risks and hazards is another really big thing. And there are intersections between the two. Um, Some of those risks are just plain physical risks. Like there's always a risk that you're gonna get a hole in your ship and depress if you hit a micrometeorite or a piece of debris. And so we worry about stuff like that. So it is a physically risky place to operate. We worry about leaks, we worry about fires, we worry about um, toxic release. There's a lot of toxic nasties on any spacecraft. And so medically you have to be prepared for those. Um, You also have to think about how all of those will affect the human body that's in space because we're not normal human bodies up there We're now, you know, as I call it extraterrestrials So you have to combine an acute insult with that new physiologic baseline this new set of of norms Um, and then you've got some of the more Well, definitely sinister is a good word, but uh, subtle uh, physical challenges in particular radiation And that is still probably our biggest limitation to really long duration flight, like going to Mars. And so space is a radiation environment. When we're up there, even in low Earth orbit, we're soaking up a little less than half a millisievert a day. And we can get a lot of radiation on a long duration flight. And going to Mars and back, you know, once we're above the Van Allen belts, which is almost like a radiation shield for us, then you're going to triple that daily dose of radiation and um, you're going to be right on the ragged edge with some of our mission plans now of getting about one sievert, which really puts you in um, a, a not pleasant risk, lifetime risk bracket for cancer. So that, that is probably our number one limiter. We can't shield against it because shielding is too heavy and the particles once you get out of low Earth orbit are big energetic, you know, iron nuclei that, that move at relativistic speed. So and, and, um, radiation is a big one and it's not just cancer. We, we worry about uh, vascular damage from radiation and we worry about CNS damage. So both of those are there. The other big one is something that we've discovered only recently in these last few years. And that's this neuro-ophthalmic syndrome that we're still trying to understand. It's been going on forever. We just didn't see it until about 10 years ago or so, a little more than that. And uh, it involves a constellation of changes to the central nervous system, in particular the neuroophthalmic system, that uh, affects probably, when we look at a strict definition 70%, 80% of, of people who fly long duration, like I will arbitrarily call long duration greater than 30 days. I, I would say that it probably affects more like 100% of people. It's just the variable expression of where you want to draw that line. But what does that include? It's changing of the globe shape, globe flattening. Um, so we get kind of a hyperopic fluid or, uh, uh, vision shift in a lot of people. Um, we see optic nerve sheath distension. We see choroidal folds. Um, we actually sometimes see optic disc edema. Uh, I definitely did in my flight and, um, my eye is permanently remodeled on the right side in particular. Uh, there's some lateral laterality to it for some people. Um, and then we also see changes in the brain that we didn't expect. So there's a shift of the brain upwards in the calvarium. And we're just now discovering some distribution changes in white and gray matter in certain regions of the brain, which uh, because people seem to be okay cognitively, it's, it may be nothing more than a new observation of some neuroplasticity we never understood before. But um, it's not something we take lightly. And for some of us, uh, that those neuro changes really did induce some permanent changes. And so you, you take optic disc edema very seriously, and we've definitely seen it in a few astronauts by now. So that is something we want to understand much more thoroughly before we send people off on Mars missions, which could last two and a half to three years. So those are probably the two big ones that I look at that keep me up at night. The other ones are a lot of fun. Um, but I would also say that um, you know, some of these things we, we find only with time with repeated flights and new tools like high resolution mris that able to able to give us really detailed looks at the neuro system we've found other things that we didn't expect since then like venous thrombosis and uh, stasis and even reversal of flow in the jugular venous tract and so we are now of this mind says yeah what are we going to find next you know what what is next so there's a lot of known unknowns that we're still trying to characterize But it's the unknown unknowns that I worry about as well. And that's part of what makes this very exciting.
1: It's insane. It's really like you're an extraterrestrial. It's a completely new environment. The body is going to change so much. So it does make a lot of sense. I do find it interesting how young, I guess, the field is in that way. You know, we're still exploring a lot of it.
2: Yeah. So when you think about it, we, we've been dorking around in space for you know, over 60 years. Um, it's amazing what we know, but it's amazing what we don't know, because there's still not that many people who have flown in space. And when you think about an experiment or an investigation that characterizes a system, you know, we live in a very small end world, even though we've flown, uh, you know, certainly over 600 people in space the number of people involved in really well-controlled experiments to show us things like central venous circulation or ophthalmic changes still pretty small. Um, and our population has been fairly filtered. You know, we get people who are, you know, reasonably in in good physical shape um, and a certain age, a certain education range up until just recently, that's kind of been the, the flying population, almost like a military population. We're expanding that now to the commercial world where we expect to see people younger and older, we're already seeing this, younger and older with various medical issues going on. So we are still in what I would almost call an explosive discovery phase, even though we've been doing this so long. So, you know, in my mind, 60 years, that's not a new specialty, but when you look at the number of people that we are able to study and the tools uh, and their availability over time, it is very much a young specialty. And we are learning new stuff all the time.
1: It's crazy. <laughs> um, so we talked, I know, kind of about some pretty scary things. But I also wanted to ask, maybe on a lighter note, what are the fun things that you've learned in space about physiology or just about space in general? Um, I think that, I don't know, something that I'm thinking of, is there any ability that you've acquired <laughs> from being in space? I don't know if that happens when you're there. I don't know if that's a, like some positive lasting impacts happen when you come back to Earth. And then, you know, maybe we can talk more about the descent, too, and how you adapt back to Earth's gravity.
2: True. Well, I, I joke about it. I, I, I've told my kids that the radiation gave me superpowers. Um, and they, they don't really buy that necessarily, but that was an oft-repeated scenario in sci-fi when I was a kid. Um, you know, all of these, most of these changes that happen in zero gravity are adaptive, And they make you function better in zero g. So when I say you're an extraterrestrial, I I mean that in a positive way Um, Because once you've been up there, it's just amazing how well you can function how easy you can do certain things in, in zero gravity And we're up there to study zero gravity, not just physiologically, but the physical sciences and fundamental biology I mean, there's so much to learn on iss and our experiment docket is is just way full So we're up there deliberately to study the effects of zero gravity on like all systems, because just like with the human body, when you take away that dominant force, you find things that were otherwise just totally eclipsed by by the dominant forces of gravity up there. Um, And so the main thing zero G adaptation makes you good for is working in zero G. But in a way, um, you, you are paying a penalty for it. So you're, you're losing bone, you're losing muscle. Um, we can keep a lot of that up with heavy exercise, but the, mode, the bone doesn't remodel the same way up there when we exercise versus when we're just walking around in, in one g. So is it good bone? Well, we're still trying to figure that out. Is it good enough? Um, what are the effects of the radiation? Where it's you know maybe not big enough to give you a noticeable uptick in cancer, but you know is that Maybe it's not a bad thing. It's probably not a good thing. What about this neuro syndrome that we have? That's maybe nothing more than an anatomical marker of space flight because we haven't seen long-term vision impairments or anything like that, but, but it's probably not a good thing either. So um, what that leads us to think about is how long we, as people, would ever really want to spend in zero gravity. But we're thinking about a big picture, and that picture is expansion. You know, we, we want to move out. Um, to the, you know colonize the solar system. And that will involve places with fractional G. So lunar gravity, Mars gravity, lunar is about one sixth, Mars is about a third. Um, those are the interesting places where we might end up staying for long periods of time. So a lot of what we're learning between zero G and one G on the earth is really how to live in those places. So we think about this as a step on that, that big continuum. So that's really what we're bringing home is Is really how to live best, transitioning between those two worlds, if you will. And um, zero G will be kind of a stop along the way or a place to study all of this. Now, having said that, you did say the lighter side. I mean, first of all, it's just cool to float. Um, You know, don't get me wrong, it is cool to float. Um, You you can fly like Superman. uh, You can't not play with your food up there. You know, we we throw stuff at each other all the time, we squirt our friends. just the idea that you can effortlessly push off from one surface. And if you're really good, you know, 50 feet down through two modules, you, you contact another surface and slingshot around. I mean, that, that's just way cool. Um, the other big enchilada is just seeing your home planet from space, something you never get tired of. You know, when you you look at that incredibly blue planet, with white swirly clouds and, green and brown mountains down there and it's just hanging out there in the blackness of space and you you know you realize so many things all at once you're incredibly privileged um but you also think man that, that's it that's all we got <laughs> you know that is a fragile planet out there it's incredibly impossibly beautiful but it's just something you really want to take care of uh, and i think those realizations that that happened to everybody they're, they're kind of coupled with the fact that you realize you don't need nearly as much stuff to get by. Not as much water, uh, not as much food as you thought, not as much variety as you thought. I mean, we we live really very well up there. So you, all of those realizations are sort of like wrappers around the work that you're doing up there that you kind of have responsibility for. So that's kind of one way I like to think about it.
1: I mean, I I can't imagine seeing that from space, truly.
2: Well, I hope you get to sometime. I hope I get to
1: someday. <laughs> I mean, I think that that kind of leads me into my next question, which is, and I don't know if anyone really knows the answer to this, but, you know, you think about astronaut selection through NASA, and it's historically been a very competitive process. You have to basically check all the boxes. You physiologically have to be in good health for reasons that we've definitely touched on. But as we move more commercial, what do you think it's going to look like, I guess? Is that going to change? Is it always going to be like that? How would someone, if someone really wants to be an astronaut, how would they even go about sort of starting that process?
2: Well, I mean, the good news is in the early days, it was just like you mentioned. Everyone had to be really good physically, really good mentally. Um, And the only games in town were agencies, the U.S. Space Agency, NASA, the Russian Space Agency, now China. Uh, All that has changed already. So if you look at the astronaut cadre now compared to, say, the Apollo era, We don't look the same. We're not all test pilots, and we're not all guys. We are men, women of all flavors and colors and all different backgrounds. I mean, the diversity, you know, people look at the appearance, uh, the diversity there, but it's really the diversity of thought that's changed and makes us stronger. We We have jet pilots, make no mistake. We have test pilots, and we need them but we got science nerds, we got geologists, we got biologists, you know, we've got a few medical doctors such as myself. Um, That makes us incredibly strong uh, when we're talking about exploration and discovery, you know, so we're, we're not now in that mode of trying to push the envelope and, you know, just see what, how we can wring the most out of this new hardware that we're developing. It's really now the exploring phase and, um, and of course, we have a crew now that's named that's going to start well, heading out around the moon. And that's, of course, preliminary to sending another crew to the moon. And we go back there with this same new mindset, not to win a space race or to prove new hardware, but to go there to stay, to explore, to discover. And, you know, that those changes that have happened organically in the current astronaut office um, are, are going to continue because you need that diverse set of skills and backgrounds and lines of thinking that to, to make you strong explorers. Uh, so that's, that's one thing. I mean, I, you know, I, I like to joke. I mean, I may look like an Olympic specimen. I'm not by any means. Um, and I ain't no Einstein. And my wife would tell you that most astronauts are of low to average intelligence. Um, but you know, we're, we're affable. We're curious. We're hardworking. We're committed though, Those are the things that, that really make, I will say a NASA astronaut. And I have a lot of friends who are astronauts in other agencies, European Space Agency, Japanese, Canadian, and Russian, of course. I'm in Russia now. Um, and so I think that, that trend is global um, and it's, it's here to stay. And now that's counterbalanced with this new commercial world where there are non-agency people flying. We've already flown Inspiration4 uh, from SpaceX and we are anticipating Polaris Dawn flying later this year. These are all non NASA non-agency astronauts. And um, that diversity in everything, whether it's age, health status, um, all of that, is is broadening. So, I mean, that that's a trend I honestly expected for a long time. Uh, it seemed like it was coming too slow. Now that it's here, it's moving really fast. Um, so, the opportunities if someone just really wants to fly in space are are much more numerous than they used to be.
1: And that's honestly great news. And I think as we Learn more about aerospace medicine and the effects in space. Hopefully, we can do it more safely too.
2: It's, we're a long way from using the word safe. Um, you can only use safe in a relative sense in spaceflight right now. That you know, one scenario is safer than another. Um, but you, when you think about the energies involved of lofting people to space, we're we're a long way from safe. And I, I do have to remind people that you know what we do in low Earth orbit now is probably as close as you can come to using the word safe, if you will, because we've done it a lot and for many years, and we're good at it. But we're about to start pushing that envelope again and breaking Earth orbit, heading to the Moon with brand new hardware. Um, you know that that ups the ante quite a bit, and so. It's um, it's not for the faint of heart, we'll put it that way. We live in a world of risk management mm-hmm. and it's going to be that way for quite a while. Now, having said, I don't wanna scare people away. Um, what, what NASA tries to do is open the space frontier, not keep it limited to a bunch of really healthy, really high performing individuals, but open it to, to people who have all sorts of different reasons to fly in space. Um, and those are always gonna be following in the places where NASA or other agencies have paved the way more. So low Earth orbit is one of those places. It's perfectly understandable that commercial flights are gonna be sending people into low Earth orbit now uh, because we've demonstrated how to do that. But we don't expect the commercial world to be landing people on the moon. That's the high risk stuff that, that we wanna do and then eventually we'll hopefully make that more routine. And then NASA would like to branch out further, Mars and, and potentially further. And so we, we expect to be kind of the, the cutting edge ex- explorers and the agency flights. Um, and we expect the commercial world to follow in, in those places. And right now that's happening quite nicely.
1: That's honestly very inspirational and good news. I think people are gonna be very happy to hear that. <laughs>
2: Uh, well, just, I mean, th- this is news unfolding every day. <laughs> um, not knowing when this podcast is going to air, uh, there is a tentative plan to launch the first orbital starship tomorrow by our friends at SpaceX. And uh, if not tomorrow on this, or I'm sorry, Sunday on this or Monday, rather on the 17th, if not Monday, the 17th, it'll come soon afterwards. So uh, that'll be a huge milestone. And The pace of development now is just amazingly brisk. So they don't, nobody has to listen to me. All you got to do is read the news. (laughs) These events are happening right now.
1: I was gonna ask, and if you can't disclose, that's fine. But I'm curious um, more about what you're training for, whatever you're able to say. If you're not, that's fine too. But if it relates in any way,
2: Feel free to share. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's safe to say. I, um, Ironically, the last space flight I had was 2011. And uh, since that time, I've served as a, a, a bureaucrat in charge of human research for NASA, the human research program, and as lead medical. Rep. I've had several other roles, um, academic and leadership and whatnot. Uh, but I can safely say I'm training to return to space. I'm very, very happy about that. Uh, and the overwhelming likelihood is that I'll be going back to the International Space Station for another six month tour of duty with a crew which is much younger than myself and all rookies, rookie flyers. Uh, so I will be in, in some ways kind of the adult supervision, but uh, I, I will just tell you that it's, it's going to be an amazing crew and um, it's something I'm very much looking forward to. So working hard to that end and um, hopefully we'll uh, We'll put some solid plans to that sometime soon. I absolutely cannot wait to get back into space.
1: That's great. And I'm excited to see you up there.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Remember to wave. uh, I I used to tell my mom that we flow over the houses of people we like. So uh, give me your address and we'll try to fly the station over your house.
1: Sounds good. Yeah, well, I'll drop you the school's address.
2: (laughs) Well, I think you're in Chicago. I trained in Chicago. I spent eight years there in my medical education and I absolutely loved that time.
1: Thanks for joining us today. This has been incredibly insightful.
2: Well, my absolute pleasure, and and I would just encourage people: if if there is interest to pursue, there are resources out there, and uh, there is a lot to learn, a lot to know. The same is true for space medicine as for any other specialty. You can never know enough. You will never learn it all, and it's moving fast. So uh, you know, it think of it as a train. You jump on, and it's it's going to be moving. It's it's not a passive interest. It's out there and it will consume you. Uh, but it's just one of the coolest things ever.
1: Well, I'm excited to share it with others. This is great.
0: All right, well, it was a
2: pleasure talking to you, Sarah.
1: You
0: too. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.